Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. It's my pleasure to introduce the first episode of Season 4. For the season premiere, we're joined by Professor Carla F.C. Holloway, author and emerita professor of English and Law at Duke University, and Dr. Bill Hoy, Associate Director and Clinical Professor in the Medical Humanities Programme at Baylor University. What you're about to hear is a conversation in front of a live audience between Carla, Bill, and the co-organisers of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Savro. Dieter and Ian will be speaking with Carla and Bill about their work on death and dying. Without any further ado, I'll hand you over to Dieter, Ian, Carla and Bill. So, hi everyone. We are very excited to start the fourth season of Conversations about Arts, Humanities and Health. These seasons are completely random. We've been on a kind of summer hiatus, so we'll, we're calling this the fourth. And we're very, very pleased that Professor Carl F.C. Holloway, author and emeritus professor of English and Law at Duke University, and Dr. Bill Hoy, Associate Director and Clinical Professor in the Medical Humanities Programme at Bale University. That we're so pleased that you could join us to kick off this season. And we'll be talking to you on the topic of death and dying. And in our conversation, we'll explore the complex terrain of race and gender at the intersection of literature, law and bioethics, alongside clinical perspectives on the transformative power of bereavement and the social benefits of funeral ceremonies. Ian, I gladly hand over to you. So it's a huge pleasure to introduce Carla and Bill. You've already heard uh, a brief introduction from Dieter, um, but Carla is an emeritus professor of English, African-American studies and law at Duke. Her book, Passed On, is an astonishing piece of scholarship, both intensely personal and intensely insightful, multidisciplinary in its approach to explore the dying and the funeral experiences and rights of of Black African-Americans. She says in her introduction, Passed On explores a century's worth of experience with Black death and dying to argue that African-Americans' particular vulnerability to an untimely death in the United States intimately affects how Black culture both represents itself and is represented. And it is indeed a powerful and astonishing read. Um, She's written many other work and has moved on more recently to fiction with the Harlem Trio uh, or trilogy, which um, is in near completion. I think we'll all be looking forward to the third novel uh, when it comes out soon. Bill is Clinical Professor of Medical Humanities at Baylor. I'm honoured to count him as a friend and one of the most insightful and wise people I've ever heard speak on the subject of bereavement, death and dying with an incredible practical understanding and knowledge of, of that entire environment, both from his personal experience as a bereavement counsellor when working intensely in bereavement in different ways and leading and developing pastoral and bereavement care programmes, but also through widespread writing, including Do Funerals Matter?, which is a, a very multidimensional examination, uh, a multidisciplinary examination of death rituals. So the two of our speakers have a great deal to say to each other, which means that I need to shut up. I'm going to just ask each of them just to tell us a little bit about their journeys and how do they come to research and think about death and dying. So, Carla. I was saying before we began that my children told me that I was relentless about reading them poems about funerals, Emily Dickinson, um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, James Weldon Johnson, and have had the same fascination with death and dying that I think many of us had. The difference is, as an African-American, it came as a more familiar space to me, and certainly was familiar because my father I learned much later in life, had trained as a mortician. When I wrote the book that Ian speaks so kindly of, I knew what I wanted it to look like. I knew I wanted this image, which is called Funeral Procession by Ellis Wilson, which was made famous in a sitcom back in the 1980s, I think. Um, It was the subject of that sitcom. And a lot of people say, yeah. I'm not saying the name of the sitcom, but it was a Bill Cosby show. Zip my lip. But this image told for me a particular kind of story of death and dying. But in the book, I came to it as a very academic enterprise. I mean, I'm an English professor. Um, I wanted to know about the business of burial. And I wanted to know the stories because I'm a narrative scholar. And I found that that intersection hadn't quite happened yet. 
So I was busy writing as an academic, going to the conferences I needed to go to, which surprised me, going to a funeral director and mortician's conference, talking to morticians, talking to students of mortuary schools, doing the research on death rates in medicine, finding the, what is the phrase, the excess mortality, right? When you die outside of the numbers that people expect. But African-Americans have excess mortality in almost every category of dying and going very dutifully through those figures and actually working on the chapter of the death and dying of children when my own son died in an absolutely horrific and tragic incident. And then I remember thinking, why did you think you could escape this book? You know, it is about African-Americans. You are African-American. And the one thing I lost in that grieving process was the ability to read or to write. Numbers too, but I was never good with numbers. And when I came back to the book, it shifted from being that very academic treatise to something that was more intersectional, that weaved the personal and the political, that included my son's funeral sermon, that begins with a prologue that tells the story of his death and dying. And then I thought I got it. Then I thought I got the story of African-America who had to be both object and subject of this field, death and dying. Um, We are both those studied and those doing the studies and occupying that strange interdisciplinary space without its own borders or boundaries or even any frames in that sort of untethered space I found my way towards talking to hospice group and palliative care physicians, doing grand rounds on what to how to deal with dying um, families whose loved ones are dying. I went to law school to better learn the language of, you know, so what's the difference between an illness and a spiritual illness, a physical illness and a spiritual illness, just being fully immersed, fully freed, I think in that interdisciplinary space to think about poetry and music and song and literature and statistics. Since writing passed on 20 years ago this year, I have found, I think the most satisfying space was about five years ago in a sort of anniversary of the book and an evolution of my own thinking. I thought that there was not a word for families who had lost a child, and especially in the U.S., where we are experiencing those in extraordinary numbers because of our laxity with gun laws. I wrote an essay saying we ought to have a word for parents who have lost a child. And about three years later, I came up with a word that was related to the Sanskrit word widow, which means empty. And I remember Lady Bird Johnson saying she was not empty when Lyndon Bings Johnson, our president, died. Um, So I went back to the Sanskrit and found the word veloma, which means against the natural order of things. I actually have here today a poster which was sent to me from someone in Ireland with Gaelic on it. Um, So this word has traveled the world now. And there are veloma football societies in your country, in um, a football dads who call themselves the Veloma Club, parents, men who have lost children. Um, there are Veloma societies in Australia and the United States. And I think that sort of capsulizes the experience for me. As an English professor, I wanted, I went to words for solace. Um, so that produced the book, that produced the single word which would name a parent who had lost a child. And that, I think, tells the story of my odd relationship to death and dying as an academic space and as a personal space. Thank you so much. Bill, we're coming towards the 10th anniversary of your book, Do Funerals Matter? Speaking of anniversaries of books, uh, um, your journey through this Intense personal, intensely interesting, intensely important academic space? Well, Ian and Carla and 
Dieter, as we were talking the other day, it, it occurs to me that probably academic immigrant is the best term that describes my pilgrimage because I did not by any means start out in the academy. I started out at the bedside, trained first as a parish pastor in the Baptist tradition in the United States. Not too many years into that, finding pretty certain that my best gifts were exercised as, as much as I enjoyed the pulpit and hated the administrative tasks of pastoring churches. What I found was that where I was most at home was at the bedside of my parishioners who were in the last chapter of their life and in the homes of their families thereafter. In discovering that, I realized that really I was a misfit in some ways in parish life. And so over a, a period of years, two things really happened. One was I returned to school to complete my clinical training in counseling. I guess in the UK, you call it too. We call it in the US the terminal degree, and it's named that for many different reasons. And then also to really learn some things, both academically and at the same time at the bedside with dying people and their families. And so I've looked after uh, somewhere north of 5,000 now. Uh, I've seen a lot of different kinds of dying, to be sure. And most of that was not done from a pastoral care standpoint, but rather in a secular counseling center in uh, what was at that time certainly one of the multicultural milieus of the United States, so Long Beach, California. Uh, Long Beach, we knew at the time, was already, this was the late 80s and early, well, mid-80s and early 90s, it was already home to more Cambodians, the second largest Cambodian city in the world following only Phnom Penh. At the time that I was in Long Beach, our school district included families who spoke 110 different languages at home. So it was a wonderful place to learn how to do death and bereavement in a cross-cultural perspective. Uh, it was really out of that that emerged my, my scholarly interest in sort of how funerals work cross-culturally. And all the while, I think that in, unfolded against the backdrop of this very sense of, of finding meaning in loss and how uh, funerals and other rituals help us to walk out the walk of finding meaning in the midst of loss. It just so happened that I only knew Carla from, as a hero from afar during those days. We had never met, but I'd been so taken in the uh, actually prior to the writing of my book with the sermon for her son which, in fact, Carl, I didn't tell you guys the other day, but it's a required reading in a course that I teach on suffering. They have to read the, the title of that chapter from Carly's book is The Promise of Hope in a Season of Despair. And I can't think of more fitting words that describe what we try to do in grief is that we actually help people as they cross this chasm from uh, what is the darkest place in their lives in many cases uh, not to recover from loss. Uh, I, I don't believe there's any such thing. I don't think we go back to business as usual or return or forget or any of those things. I don't think we ever find closure. Rather, what the term I use is we integrate the loss into the rest of our lives. And that's been a bit of my journey. It just so happened that the university plucked me out of clinical practice. Uh, they were looking for somebody who had that level of expertise. And uh, my wife and I were ready to be out of Southern California to be completely candid. And her family is here in Texas. It just so happens that this conversation today is against the backdrop of we having started my mother-in-law on hospice just four days ago. And she is in the very, very final days of her life now after many years with Alzheimer's disease. And my wife and I have been her caregiver and caregivers in our home. She's lived with us since March of 2020 when the pandemic began. So, so it, it's really, it, it's sort of when I come to the university, I'm sort of dealing with this in an academic standpoint. And then I drive 30 kilometers home 
to where this is very much a real part of my life and a very personal experience. So uh, it's it just it's extraordinary to get to have this conversation with uh, the three of you today. Bill, before Dieter asks the next question, I'm just going to say we obviously send you and your family uh, some serious thoughts. Yes, thank you. Thank you both for sharing your, your journeys. And when we had a, a meeting before, we were talking about the richness of funeral traditions in, in many cultures, especially African-American culture. And we, we thought, you know, this would be great if you could, you know, say something about these richness of, of traditions that you've engaged with, you know, in your, your work and in your lives. I have to say that going into the book, I had, I don't know, it's a healthy or unhealthy critique or skepticism about the business of burial, the industry of it. And coming out of the book, and I don't know if it was because of what happened in the midst of writing or just the funeral directors and morticians whom I met, I had a deep gratitude for them. I remember with the sermon you so kindly mentioned, which is by Reverend Dr. Maurice Wallace, and I, who was at Rutgers University, and I will share that he is now a curriculum staple. He was my student when I first came to Duke, and when he told me he was a pastor, and we formed a closer relationship. And when my son died, for the reasons of his death, it would, would not have been appropriate to have the regular funeral. But I wanted a sermon, and that's how the season of the hope in the season of despair came about. But what I realized was that funeral directors and morticians are griots in the African American, African culture, West Africa, and especially where G R I L T is a storyteller. These are the holders of our traditions of stories. So if you come to a Black funeral director, you might not know what to do. You might have sort of kind of remembered what happened with, with great-grandma or maybe your father or whomever, but they would be the ones who told, who said, well, you know, it can go like this or it can go like this or you may choose this, that, the other. And I realized they are culture keepers. And in a sense, you need folded around you at that moment, your own winding cloth, something that will keep you intact while the moment of grief is working, the labor of grief is working its way through you and your family. In many ways, the African-American funeral director does that because their special task has been to hold African-America together in funerals that never should have happened. Many cultures can think of, well, at the end of my life, well, we think about the end of life happening at the beginning of life. We're reading now in the clinical literature about Black um, maternal mortality. I was working on a project with a scholar at Chapel Hill about what do you do when all of the frozen eggs are not used? Do you want to funeralize them? Do you want your body to reabsorb them? Do you want ritual? And it's ritual and storytelling. I want to say we escape to it, but it actually makes itself available to us. And the ones who do this are the ones who have been tasked with both the work and the memory. And that's the African-American funeral director. So although you might not know the traditions and you might not want to even use them, one of the things I often say in clinical settings is please put the patient first. They may be like me, a humanist, and not want a deeply religious service. I remember when my mother died, who introduced our family to being Unitarian. She had every kind of clerical somebody come by her hospital room, whether it was a rabbi or a priest or a pastor. She said, I want to know God is love, right? And someone would say, well, through his son, Jesus Christ, she said, I don't want any intermediaries. Just tell me God is love. She wanted to know about love at the end of her life. And that's what we remember about my mother. And I think in being able to incorporate both the individual as well as offer the stories and the songs and the spoken word rituals, which are also a part of African-American culture, to you, those men and women, that society of folk, maintaining their coherence 
when African-American death and dying is such a troubling national health emergency is an extraordinary blessing and challenge. And I am grateful to them. Bill, in terms of studying funeral traditions in general, making sense of them and comparing them, I mean, what's what's been your thoughts on both, even how to go about that and how you've gone about it? Because I think that this field is so unique because it's so personal uh, at the same time as being of intense and import, you know, academic importance. I have several thoughts swirling around in my head right now. Uh, one of them is it's interesting that I, too, have, have explored African-American funerals, but have done so clearly. Yeah, everyone looking at my picture can tell I do so as an outsider to the culture. I'm a very fair, complected white boy who grew up for good or for ill in the deeply segregated southern United States in the 1960s. I've often wondered if my interest in African-American funerals and what I have said to Carla and to the two of you before, I happen to believe that the traditional African-American funeral, and I don't mean it in a monolithic way, but that set of traditions, I believe, is about as close to a perfect funeral ritual as we have anywhere in the world. It gets everything done that needs to be done in the face of death in an extraordinary way. I've often wondered if my interest in that is not in some ways paying penance for having grown up in a culture that was deeply oppressive and had its part in way more than our share of our part in the oppression of which Carla spoke a few minutes ago. And so I think I tread very lightly when I start talking about my observations about African-American funerals. And I also keep hearing a pastoral counseling dictum that I learned really early in my career 40 years ago, I suppose now. And, and that was when the pastor under whom I was uh, training at the time said, Bill, never forget we have two of these and one of these. And that should give us indication of how often we should use one or the other. And I teach my medical students that uh, because honestly, in all professions, the, the very term profession, I, I believe, and I'll, I'll look to the, to the linguist in the room to correct my thinking here, but, but the, where, the very term profession means I am professing something. And I think at the intersection of life and death, whether it comes to the aged or to the very young. My mother-in-law turned 92 two weeks ago, and I realized how extraordinary of a life that is and how unusual it would be outside of a white, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant community in the United States. And certainly my friends in Kenya would never see such thing as that. And I, I think I come to this Sensing in so many ways that I explore funerals and the social support that they and all of the other rituals incumbent around death, the social support that those provide to us, the opportunity to begin the process of making meaning, I really sense that I am treading on sacred ground here. And so I work hard to be a learner rather than a professor. There's something you said. I want to take the chance. It was about penance. You know, I was listening to my first lady, Michelle Obama, yesterday. And in the U.S., the presidential portraits were revealed for the White House. And one of the things she said that her husband says, my president, Barack Obama, was that no matter what, we are closer in our spirits than our differences suggest. And this idea of penance, I want to urge you away from, to speak, to be interested in, to name, to give students an opportunity to read. That's the work that you have found. But not one of us owes for ancestral harms, except to notice them, to speak plainly and honestly about them. But our personal responsibility, I want to urge 
maybe those listening even, I know we're in this age of apology and uh, reparations and whatever, but there's a big part of me, my family would deny it, but I'm a realist. And we are both children of the 60s and had experiences which shape us today. And what the work you are doing and the kindness of your vision, the breadth of your vision, I think is a gift. And if we always think of ourselves as doing penance, we don't allow ourselves to see that we are doing good work in the world. Being in this conversation is a gift that you have all given me with both of our English friends and especially you, Professor Hoy. This is the work that has somehow fallen into our lap, that has attracted our interest. And our job is to do the work well, as well as we can. One of the things that comes up often with um, our conversations is how many of us as scholars practice epistemic humility in the face of the humanities, because they're dealing with such complex questions in such a challenging way. And actually, we're working into disciplinary spaces often where finding the right way through requires a lot of humility. Knowledge as a sacred space, I think, is something interesting and different that you said, Bill. And, and it feels right that a study of death has that additional element, especially when you're immersed in the closeness of this as um, the, the personal, the funeral rites and the like. So thank you for those words very much. We were talking in our, in our early work, in our pre-conversations, about the changing nature of funeral traditions, the advent of technology, and how these things might change our funeral rites. And I wonder whether either of you would like to reflect on whether you think, from your work or your experience, that the funeral traditions and the way that funeral rites in general are, are, are manifest and carried out is actually changing from because of things like this, of Zoom and of, of other systems. It's interesting that you um, that you raised that question today. I don't know how many of your your viewers are in the UK, but as I've been reading headlines this morning about the what appears to be very serious health conditions of the Queen, and I came upon sometime in the last twenty four hours the notion that, like in the US, when a head of state dies, we have a a very elaborate plan that has been in place for years. I believe it's called Operation London Bridge in your case, and and how steeped in tradition it is. And it's really interesting. A lot of folks don't know the fact that I'm about to share, but in 1963, Jessica Mitford had just published a, an awful rebuke uh, against the American funeral industry and the American funeral traditions Uh, writ large, in which she essentially said that it was a huge waste of money, time, effort, energy, and did nothing except fill the pockets of funeral directors. And probably Carla and I both were in some ways influenced by that thinking, if not by her work directly, and certainly in your thoughts about funeral directors at the beginning there that you shared. But one, at least one critic uh, whose work I read, and I couldn't remember now who it was, uh, suggested that the undoing of Mitford's work and the reason that it did not get any greater uh, legs than it did, and it certainly was a a force to, to be reckoned with, but that perhaps the reason that it did not have any great staying power in changing American funeral traditions in any great way was that very shortly after that book was published, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And suddenly the United States and the world was thrust into watching a very traditional funeral. And virtually everyone who watched it realized that even though they could not be present, Walter Cronkite and others like them helped us walk out our grief by viewing that very traditional funeral. Having a ritual matters. Who is going to tell you that ritual? You know, certainly my job as a parent, we just buried a nephew and our job was to let our his children and our own children, my, my younger sister and I are the ones surviving, to let them know what the family traditions are. And sometimes families are and are not capable. But ritual is a space of saving grace where you can be 
wrapped into its familiarity. Later, it unwraps you and you might unravel. Emily Dickinson writes, after death, a formal feeling comes. And that's one of the two poems that I love by Emily Dickinson. But then you're you're let loose into that formal feeling and you are undone. But you have that moment. And this is the way I felt after the funeral sermon for my son. I remember, don't stop. You know, I, I had told him, this is not a Baptist funeral. Do not go on, you know, on and on. And it was, and it was too short because in that space of his words, I felt safe in a terribly unsafe period of our family's life because of the situation and the events of of his dying. But that space of ritual can save you for the next moment. And the funeral director, regardless of what Mitford said, and you're absolutely right, I was raised with that, you know, they're just making money. And and the funeral directors I spoke to, you know, our people said, you know, our people like show. But show is going to cost you, you know. And then they told me what what show meant and what show could mean. And a lot of us also had just watched the film Imitation of Life, which came out in the late 50s, where there's a black funeral and with horses and a glass carriage. And we said, that's the one for me. Of course, the singer Alila had one very much like it um, about 15, 20 years ago when she died. So that space of ritual is a safe space in the midst of an undoing, a bodily and spiritual undoing. And that's what Mitford missed, I think. I think she was right to question the the ways in which the industry works. I remember getting a call from, who is our eldest senator? I think he's from Iowa. Anyway, his office was doing an investigation of the funeral industry, and he wanted to know what I had learned from the book. And I was saying, who are you calling me? But I think there is some necessary federal regulation about it. But when those bodies came back from Jonestown, this was the massacre. I call it a massacre, not a suicide, uh, group suicide in Jonestown. It was the Black funeral directors who were called to take care of them, to contact the families, to do what was familiar who give us this one safe space of ritual in a moment when after that, and I was so touched to hear you say, you're there with families after the moment of death. And we all know that's when both folks disappear and we need you the most. So I like the funeral director as a culture keeper. It's changing though just to speak to the technology issue. When I wrote Passed On, I was writing about morning t-shirts, which were becoming very ubiquitous in the Black community. RIP and whoever's face was, you know, stamped on it by that process that prints t-shirts automatically. I think I said there, that was a way of acknowledging we do grieve. One of the things that happens, I think, with minority populations, look, look what's happening happening in the Sudan. Look at what's happening in Ethiopia, in Pakistan. Um, sometimes one part of the world thinks that people do not grieve in the same way we do. And so we pay less attention to mass deaths and experiences which are just beyond our ken. But those memorial T-shirts help people say, yes, I have lost somebody and I am grieving. And now it's replaced by PowerPoint shows. And during the pandemic, it was replaced. The funeral was replaced by Zoom seminars. But those can have the moderator do share a screen with the funeral program on it and everything else. And I went to more than one Zoom funeral in the last two or three years. So I think Technology is entering into the story. And to that point, one of the anchors of funerals that that I found in my research is that all of us, uh, every people group we've ever seen anywhere at any point in time, depend on some kind of activity in the face of of ceremony. I called it ritual action, but uh, the way I say it colloquially is we walk out what we cannot talk out. We find a way to put action to our words. And so frequently that happened 
funerals. And I think that memorial t-shirts, and uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been present with a family. We see at the funeral or the memorial service, we see the PowerPoint, the slideshow, the video, and some of them are quite extravagant. But the real work of those is not what's produced on the screen. It's watching the family gathered around the dining room table, sorting photos and telling stories. And I've been present so many times as I've watched families pour over dozens and dozens, sometimes hundreds of photos to pick out the 50 or 75 they're going to use and to determine the music. And interestingly enough, families, of course, in, in hospice care, we have a saying, the family that comes to hospice dysfunctional leaves dysfunctional. We don't change the dysfunction while they are there. But the interesting thing is that families that have not been able to get along, they have warred over how mom is going to be cared for. They have battled over everything along the way. When it comes to picking photographs, I have watched there become unanimity around that table as they say, oh, well, do you remember when we went here and when dad took us there and when we did these things together and the laughter and sometimes tears, but it's mostly laughter at those stories. And that picture makes the cut then to go in the, the story or my goodness, mom hated that picture. We've got to put that one in there or those kinds of things. So that, that use of technology helps us to walk that grief process out. And my my non-researched observation is that individuals who participate in that level of ritual keeping or ritual making do better long-term in their grief process, you know, relegate it all out to professionals and we don't do anything and we don't have any part. But the, but the other thing that's happening, and like we just went through that, picking out the pictures for my young nephew, he was only 48. And what we did was tell stories. And when we think about the narrative, the storytelling potential of funerals, getting out, well, you know your great aunt so-and-so did this back in the day. And your mama has a drawer with a dress that she wants to wear in it. So I remember writing and passed on how much Black literature takes up the, the funeral moment because it's both, it's it's a moment of high drama. If you watch what my grandmother used to call the stories or daytime soap operas, which she used to call them her stories, they were in a hospital or they were at a funeral inevitably because those are the spaces of drama. But I also say those are the spaces where stories are told, memories are made, and there's some memory keepers in there. I also warn people about, you know, don't be the one who has to tell who rides in what car in the funeral? Because that can get you into a whole bunch of trouble because families have an idea because that's a, a, I'm more important than the in-law has, you know. So the funeral directors are both as humorous and as serious as the occasion brings you to. And the technology is just another means of getting to the narrative. And I think the sermon is a narrative Whatever we say privately, one of my favorite ways of expressing is, you know, memories being a blessing. And I think that comes from the Jewish community and is being used even in wider arenas now. But it works for me because at some point you move past uh, memories being hurtful to you to memories being the things that you hold on to and keep. I remember when the pandemic started and I communicate now via Twitter. So my tweet that was copied to the North Carolina director of health or whatever was, what do you mean you are making these drugs available to people 70 years and older? Do you know when Black people die? I mean, have you done the social demographics of that? And I think because I got enough feedback from reporters and whatever, they eventually changed the age limit that they were going to start out the first pandemic vaccines from 70, which was the national age, but not um, disaggregated for race, culture, ethnicity, and gender. When they did that, and I said, we're lucky if we get to live to be 70. So they pushed it down to 65. So I think our, our interdisciplinary expertises become important in a very practical way, but they are also ways of making certain that those left out of national narratives know 
that they have a space in making, essentially making policy for the country. It's been really great to see the conversation just unfold because you've both kind of covered some topics we wanted to ask you anyway. But one thing that strikes me very much is our, the space that we have our conversations, you know, we like to think that they're by researchers for researchers. And Bill, you know, you've, you've talked about your journey and feeling like an, an immigrant into academia. And Carla, you know, after your career in academia, you now kind of are, are a novelist. And my question is, is like the topics you're working on, you know, the, the personal, the communal, the spiritual, they are so present. We don't necessarily associate that always with academic context and academic research. So, so how has it been to work on this topic in academic contexts in, in your careers? Well, I'll, I'll answer that just because I teach like Carla does at a, what we call an R1 institution, a very high research output institution. So matters of research and scholarship and publications are not just a footnote here. It's a very important part of of what faculty are expected to do. It's interesting, whenever people ask me about the topic of the genre of my research, the kind of research I do, I always get what I call the puppy dog look, the, oh? And then I go on to explain a little more about that and that I, I actually use funerals with medical students as a way to teach cultural awareness and cultural curiosity. We long since uh, quit talking about cultural competence because you can never really become competent in another person's cultural framework. But to, to become curious, to become intrigued, to become a humble about my own background and to come to your culture as a learner. And it is a wonderful gift for physicians, as I recognize Ian could probably echo, to actually develop some humility about culture and the idea of listening and learning from the other about what will be meaningful to you. So that's how it has worked here. It doesn't hurt the fact that my publisher is Routledge and they are regarded as one of the top two or three academic publishers in the world. And so uh, everything I've done, including the book I currently have in process, is a Routledge title. So that doesn't hurt when it comes to credibility, I think, in the scholarly community. And I've worked in interdisciplinary space. I was actually trained as a psycholinguist and a literature scholar. I was at Michigan State. You cross the Red Cedar River for your your linguistics training, you come back to the ivy-covered building for your literature training. So I was always betwixt and between. And then in an African-American studies department where we are by nature uh, interdisciplinary scholars, it has worked out very well because I have learned from my colleagues in sociology and econ and in medicine, genetics, all kinds of ways that I might enter a story. So it's never felt odd for me. It's Duke has always been a place that has advertised its interdisciplinary work and has structurally done very well. Some schools say they are interdisciplinary, and then when it comes to tenure, they want to say, and what department? You know, so as an administrator at Duke, I, I worked very hard to make that interdisciplinary both a factor of the scholar's identity, but the institution's way of recognizing that. And that's still the work I think that academic institutions have to do in terms of interdisciplinarity. But I also went to law school because I think interdisciplinarity still must be grounded in serious disciplinary work. So in the same way, we both went back to school for degrees after we had degrees. I don't like dabbling and I don't like, well, I read this book, so I know I know about this field. I knew better than to do that, or I respected my the subject of my scholarship too much to do that. Um, so I needed to know how to look at the law as a lawyer would rather than, and this was later than writing passed on, but in my public events since then prior to becoming emerita, um, bringing the law into how you look at, I, I've actually tweeted 
you know, why a jury's determination might be right or wrong given on judicial instructions to the jury when it comes to a murder that the public culture is saying, you know, this person ought to get the death penalty. And I said, well, you know, morally, maybe, but if if that's what you believe in, but that's not what the law says. And learning that distinction, I think, has made me the practical person my family still doesn't acknowledge that I am. But I think being able to see where music enters the story, where the arts enter the story, why is it that one of the greatest controversies came up recently around a portrait that an artist had done for for a biennial show, I think it was in New York, of Emmett Till in his casket. And it was a very abstract work. I recognized it. In Passed On, I chose to put a picture of Emmett Till as a whole child before, not to use the picture of his death mask, what he looked like after the lynching. There's a whole conversation that came up about what it meant to gaze on that image as done by a white artist. And so there are conversations I never would have imagined that can come up because you acknowledge the interdisciplinary nature of these spaces. The work with scholars of religion and theologians has been extraordinarily valuable to me. I wanted those familiar rituals for my son's funeral, even though I I am a humanist. I wanted him read into the book. And I think we are all people of the book. And however we read the book or use the book in our lives, the Bible, the Quran, whatever, when we are people of the word, we have to have some relationship to that word in our public and private lives, it seems to me. Just in hearing you, Carla, it it occurs to me the very deep level of additional grief or additional layers of grief that were thrust upon families uh, during the pandemic when funerals were shut down in virtually all of the world. And they always talk about uh, academics get our 15 minutes of fame. I got mine in the early months of the of the pandemic when I think I was interviewed by 35 different news outlets around the world about my perception on how the how funeral rituals would get changed forever. And interestingly enough, I was I, I would be stoned as a prophet because I was wrong on almost everything that I predicted about the future. But one thing is certain, and that is that we are now dealing with in clinical settings the most significant layers of complicated grief that I have seen in 40 years of caring for the dying and bereaved. And I lay a large part of the blame of that at the feet of what may have been well-intended restrictions about gathering, but probably did little to slow the pandemic and did much to increase the anguish for families And I think that is especially true in African-American communities who more than any other group in the U.S. at least depend on the gathering of people. You look at 100 photographs of funerals, and I guarantee you in nearly every African-American funeral, the church is filled to capacity. And in most white funerals, the church is filled one quarter to 10 percent. Gathering is extraordinarily important to many, if not most, families. And Zoom doesn't get it done. No, it it doesn't. doesn't. But I do want to say something because you used an important phrase. And I know the DSM-5 has finally acknowledged this phrase, complicated grief. Uh, At first, we were calling it complex grief. It's not complicated grief. The grief, you know, that goes on beyond what you would anticipate. And the fact that the that clinicians recognize this, institutions and corporations are going to have to recognize this as a consequence of the pandemic, whether it's long COVID 
or what, the grief also is one of these spaces where our illnesses will work their way through our lives. And for African-Americans, yes, I think I'm a little bit different from you. I know 20 friends who have gone to funerals and then died afterwards, literally, because they were immunocompromised or something. So the choices, I've made funeral um, decisions to go and not to go, deeply painful, but then you carry that guilt and weight too. So I think we have yet to determine what the consequence of these complications of grief will be for mourning, funeral, and ritual, but they will have consequences. And to your point, I, I think the complications of grief will reverberate the remaining time of this generation into the next. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Our bodies will remember them. Will clinicians be able to look at them and say, you know, I'm noticing in this population a certain, you know, some disease etiologies that had not been present before? Will we have the ability to be interdisciplinary enough to look at this period of pandemic and what our responses to them have been as a way of explaining them? I don't know that I trust folks to do that yet. Because as we said earlier, we want an answer, not a, well, maybe it was, we've got work to do, but we've also got extraordinary spaces where resilience is talked about, where you and I get to meet. And I think I saw you on TV on one of these, you know, what afterwards, you know, we're trying to figure out where from across the pond. We can have this kind of conversation. I am so grateful, Ian and Dieter, for your bringing me and Bill together in this way. I think that you've found the perfect place to end, partly because you've left us with academic questions and pointed the way for others who are listening to maybe think about finding a direction for their own research in the future if this is their direction. I'm just going to finish by saying thank you so much for one of the most humbling and moving conversations that we've had amongst many wonderful and awesome conversations in this series. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you to the audience for listening and to those that listen on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. That was the first episode of season four. In the next episode, Dieter and Ian will be talking with Dr. Brandy Scalace, author, historian, and editor-in-chief of the BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. Dieter and Ian will talk with Brandy about medicine and its engagement with the humanities, as well as her work as editor of Medical Humanities and the exciting new global initiatives that have been launched by the journal. Stay up to date with the latest news about our live events and about the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Convo Arts Health. This episode of Conversations about Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.